Today's sermon isn't as much being preached by me as it is to me. If I'm to be honest, as I spent time in James 3 this week, studying God's word and, and asking what would he say to us, uh, it, was this, it was as if the Holy Spirit was relentlessly saying, Earl, it's not about what I want to say to Beulah today. It's what I want to say to you this week. God wasted no time this week um, systematically and ruthlessly exposing to me how my words have a tendency to bring pain instead of healing, to bring heat instead of light, to bring poison instead of sweetness, to bring discouragement instead of affirmation. And truth be told, the Holy Spirit wasted no time setting to this work. Worship was over like seven minutes last week when in the course of a conversation, I already had plenty of evidence how my, my words or my lack of words had caused a friend great pain. And then every day this week, it's like the Holy Spirit picked up a different scalpel and started to cut away at tendencies and, and speech habits, the way words that I use and the way that I say them that didn't speak life. So my prayer today isn't that no one walks out of here hearing uh, the Holy Spirit. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to you today. But even if all of you walk out and say, well, that was, uh, you know, that was a waste of hour and a half or you know, whatever this ends up being, I get it. But God's word has tested me this week and has founded, founded me wanting. And so what I'd like to do in the next few moments is I'd like to share with you what uh, God's been challenging me with this week. And, and uh, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit will say the same to you. Maybe he won't. Uh, but let's read together in James chapter three. I'm gonna start at verse one. Pastor James writes, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because that you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. And do me a favor, if you're reading out of your Bible or wherever you're taking notes, circle that word stumble in verse two. And then just, just draw an arrow or do something in the margin, write this reference next to stumble. James 2.10. Circle stumble and write James 2.10 in the margin, or if it's in your study Bible, just circle it so it draws your attention to it. Now, if you want, flip back or look up the page at chapter 2, verse 10, and here's what it says. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles, same word here, not just the same English word, but James is making it a, cor a correlation. He's drawing our minds back to chapter 2, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So let's be clear, this topic that we're talking about, words, mouth, tongue, the way we talk, it matters. Not just because it affects those around us, but because it impacts our relationship with God. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect and able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. 
Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body. I think I read this week somewhere that the average tongue is like just over two ounces, which is pretty small, I'd say. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, there's, there's certainly larger part, parts of the body that, that we would think could do more damage. And yet, uh, kind of the, the comparison that James is drawing here is we tend to think of the big things, but it's really the small things that matter. Great big horses, little tiny bit. Great big ships, strong winds, small little rudder. Great big forest, devastating fire, small little spark. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Like we could tame an elephant, we could tame a killer whale, but we can't seem to watch our own mouths. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Here's just a a few interesting facts for us today. The average person, the average person spends one-fifth of their life talking. And that's the average person. That's not like my 11-year-old son who yesterday announced to to me and his mom, I'm really good at talking. It's like, well, you're really good at saying a lot of words anyway. The average person, one-fifth of their life. If we were to uh, take all the words that we speak, and if we were to put them in, a, in writing, the average person, again, you're with me, right? Average, some of you are saying, that's not me, I'm a little less than. Some of you are saying, I'm more than. And some of us are saying, you're way more than. Um, the average person in one day would produce a 50-page book. So just maybe kind of a visual. That's this part here. That's 50 pages, Okay. In one day, the average person, if all of our words were put into writing, would produce a 50-page book. Over the course of a year, this is a 200-page book, just so you can kind of see it. See how thick that is? Maybe an inch or so. 100 200-page books over the course of a year. This is how much we talk. And that's the average person. We are communicating people who've been created by a communicating God who communicates in words. And so, so do we. We've been created in his image. And so we do the same thing our God does. We use words to communicate. Sometimes those words are spoken. 
Sometimes those words are written. Sometimes those words are tweeted. Sometimes those words are silent, but we're constantly talking. As a matter of fact, uh, no one talks to you more than you do. We all have this running narrative in our minds. Sometimes we're more aware of it. Sometimes we're less aware, but there's always a voice in our mind. And if I don't miss my guess, your running narrative isn't done in pictures and hieroglyphics. I would guess your running narrative like mine often happens in words. We are constantly talking, constantly saying words. And so right off the bat here in these verses we just read, James uses what biblical scholars call a particularization. So he's going to take a general principle and he's going to make it particular to a group of people who need to take special caution about those words. And of course, the group that he talks about in verses one and two are teachers. Now, teachers are significant. They've been given charge to help other people learn and to grow. Teachers don't just use their words to convey information, although that's part of what a teacher does. But ultimately, good teachers realize that their teaching can shape a life. When my parents and I were signing uh, me up for uh, my freshman year of high school, uh, we began to realize that I would need foreign language credit if I was to graduate from high school. And uh, we had no idea, I had no idea what foreign language I wanted to take. I'd, I'd be fine if I didn't even have to go to school. Um, so, but we had to figure something out. So my dad urged me to, he wanted me to take Latin. He had taken Latin in high school and I thought it'd be a I think he thought it'd be a great like father-son bonding experience that we'd both learn a dead language that nobody uses anymore. Um, not that I'm anti-Latin. I wanted my kids to take Latin too. Uh, but you know, Elkhart Central didn't, didn't offer Latin at the time. So, uh, so as we tried to figure out what language we should take, I should take, not we, I, um, we decided on German. And it made sense. I was a musician and, you know, there's like a lot of dead German composers and stuff. So, so why not take German? I, I don't know. I wish I would have taken Spanish. But uh, four years of German is what I ended up taking in high school. And uh, by the end of, well, actually, well before the end of high school, I actually enjoyed German. But not because of the dead composers or, you know, how useful the language is and in America today. Um, I enjoyed German because of one thing. Her name was Frau Saunders. She was my German teacher. What are you giggling about? I'd ask if you knew her, but I'm pretty sure you didn't. Okay. All right. Frau, Frau, that's the, that's a German word for Mrs. So uh, Frau Saunders uh, taught my, my German class. And to be honest, I was horrible at German. Um, the, the first year of German, especially as a freshman, uh, I was in the percent of the class that allowed the top 75 to be on the top. <laughs> Some of you can relate, huh? Uh, I, I was just, I just, I already told you, I didn't want to be in school anyway. Um, but Frau Saunders, uh, she saw something in me. And so, so she would encourage me to, to, to keep doing the homework and to keep turning it in and, and to, keep, you know, to keep changing my wrong answers to right ones. And, and uh, whatever she saw in me, she would continually say to me, Earl, well, actually, my German name was Amadeus. <laughs> you know, dead composers and all. <laughs> Plus someone else stole Wolfgang. So I had to go with Amadeus. Not even German. But anyway, um, she would say, Amadeus, don't give up. 
She would say in German, don't give up. One day this is all going to click. And um, I don't think she was right. Ich bin Auslander und spreche nicht gut Deutsch. But because she didn't give up on me, because she kept saying one day it's going to click and it's going to change. I began to believe. And then not too long after I began to see that it was possible. I could excel in the classroom. And this is what teachers do. They don't just convey information. They change lives. And so James starts his conversation with a warning. He says, when words are multiplied, so is the risk of stumbling. When you use words all the time, especially if it's your job, the more words you use, the greater the risk of stumbling. Now, stumbling isn't just about saying too much. Oops, went too far on that one. It's not just about causing hurt feelings because of uh, thoughtless words. I mean, that's, that, that stuff all happens. But when James writes about stumbling, like I pointed out just a minute ago, he's drawing a correlation back to earlier in his letter where he says, listen, we all separate ourselves from God in many ways. For James, the matter of the tongue, the matter of the words we use isn't just an issue of hurt feelings or of missing the mark. It's about separating ourselves from God. You'll remember when we preached from James chapter two. We said there's no like grading scale for sin. And so James warns us here that if we don't use our words in the right way, it's the same from God's perspective. It deserves the same punishment as adultery, as murder, as stealing. It's not just an unfortunate oops or slip. This is significant. When we break the law at one point, we break the whole law and become guilty of sin. And so I would suggest James starts these verses with a, with a particular focus. Those who, who, if we could say it like this, speak for a living. But I would say that there's a general principle here that we need to catch. It's not just teachers who need to hear this warning that when words are multiplied, so is the risk of stumbling. Beloved, some of us have a greater proclivity to verbosity than others. Or to say that in the words of Run DMC, some of us talk too much and never shut up. Can I say shut up in church? Can I quote Run DMC in church? Uh, Some of us, we, uh, we use words like they're going out of style. And James would say to us, and if that's you, then allow the Holy Spirit to speak his truth to you. But James would say, this applies to you too. You may not be a teacher. You may not be in a position. uh, You may not have a job that causes you to talk, but by the nature of the way God's wired you, you talk a lot. And the more you talk, the greater your risk of stumbling, of committing a sin of the tongue. So for teachers, for those of us who have the gift of gab, we need to listen up today. Whether we talk for a living or whether we live to talk, we probably already understand the truth of what James shares here, but have we taken it to heart? 
James is going to tell us two things about our words. He's going to say, first of all, words exert power. Words exert power. And again, whether we, whether we have, you know, make a, a living by talking or whether we just talk to live, I think we all have a knowledge that words hurt, right? And we've all been hurt by words. And we've all had to look across the table at someone who, who's been hurt by our words. And yet we spend so much time trying to convince ourselves that words really don't hurt. And I'm just going to prove it to you. You can't argue with this. Finish this. I'm going to stop. You finish the rest of the sentence. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, some of you are going, I'm not going to do it because he's not going to prove me wrong. Okay, try this one. I'm rubber, you're glue. Okay, well, we kind of know that one. Whatever Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Can we just call those things what they are? Those little rhyming, pithy statements that we just said, can we call them what they are? They're lies. Whoever came up with those things must have been deaf. I mean, I don't don't know what the deal is, but we all know that words have power regardless of the nursery rhymes we say to try to convince ourselves or our kids that they can bounce back. Sticks and stones can hurt, but not more than words. You come up here and crack me on the head with a stick, I may have to get stitches. It may have to put a few, you know, whatever. Uh, but that'll, that'll eventually heal. When you continually bombard someone with words about how they're not good enough or how they can't match up, they carry those till their grave. Words have power. They have power to set a course. Words have the power to set a course. When I was in fourth grade, I started playing trumpet, and uh, my parents got me signed up for private lessons with uh, Gerald Nipfel. Mr. Nipfel was a former director for the Elkhart Central High School Band. He was now retired and, and doing private lessons, and he had this hobby, if you will, if you want to call it a hobby. He would uh, take outstanding musicians, teenage musicians, from the community, and he would create all-star bands, and then he would tour Europe with these bands. Uh, so when I was in seventh grade, uh, I finally had the opportunity to be part of, of this Elkhart County All-Star Youth Band. And, and uh, the goal was that we would be together for about a year and then we would do a, a tour of Europe and, and play throughout cities in Europe. Uh, at the time, by seventh grade, I had, I had switched from trumpet to baritone. Um, it's hard to play trumpet with braces. And so I joined the Elkhart County All-Star Youth Band uh, on baritone. Uh, There was five baritones. And uh, as a seventh grader, I was the youngest in the whole band. And so I sat fifth chair in the baritone section. Now, if you were in band, you know how this chair thing works. It's, it's uh, kind of like strings on a football team or a sports team. Uh, you know, if you're, the, the lower your chair is, theoretically, the less skilled you are. And so the goal, you know, if you're a musician is to move up till you sit first chair. At first chair, you play the most technically challenging musical. You have the, if there's a, you know, if there happens to be a solo for your instrument, uh, chances are you're probably going to play the solo and and so on and so forth. So um, for me, I was like, I'm in seventh grade. I'm going to Europe. Uh, I'm surrounded by high school musicians. I'm cool with fifth chair. Like that's fine. But it wasn't fine for Mr. Nipfel, who was the director of this band and my private lesson teacher. Uh, He began to say to me, Earl, I think, I think if you'll try, 
I think if you'll practice, if you'll apply yourself, I think you could very well sit first chair. At which point I'm going, mom, we're paying him too much because I'm in seventh grade and those guys are in high school, guys and gals. Uh, But he continued to hammer away at me. I think you can do this. I think you can do this. So finally, I don't know if it's because I wanted to or I just wanted him to leave me alone about it. I I challenged. So challenging is what you do to move up a chair. At least that's what you did in this band. And so there'd be some things you'd have to play and you'd play it before, you know, some uh, uh, teacher, a music teacher or a band director. And and then they'd score both of you. And whoever got the highest score um, got the higher chair. And so uh, the first challenge came. I'm challenging for fourth chair. I win. And I move up to fourth chair. The next week, I challenge again. And I win again. And I move up to third chair. And now I'm going, this is pretty good. I'm a seventh grader with some uh, high school students sitting lower than me. This is all right. That was a a wreck. You guys already know I have a a problem with competitiveness. Um, That was a wreck. Um, But challenges were coming to an end. We had one more week. And uh, and Mr. Niffle kept telling me, challenge, challenge, challenge. So I challenged. Now I'm challenging to move into second chair. Well, apparently the people who I had beaten didn't like the fact that a Sevi, a seventh grader, was moving up the ranks. And apparently everybody wanted to sit first chair. I have no idea why. Baritones never get solos. Um, So there was a five-way challenge for first chair which means we're all going to play the same thing before the same judge who's going to score us, and then we're going to be seated according to our score. So I'm going into this last challenge, and then this is it. There's no challenges after this. I'm going into this last challenge going, as a seventh grader, I could sit first chair when we travel through Europe. Whoa! And so the night of the challenge came. I worked my heart out with Mr. Niffle's help. I worked my heart out. The night of the challenge came, and whoo, I nailed it. The next week, we come back to, uh, to our, our uh, practice, and, and uh, you know, there's a sheet with all the challenges and all the results, and, and there my name was, Earl Smith, comma, Pierre Moran Middle School, comma, seventh grade, comma, baritone, comma, chair, colon, five. And I walked from that practice saying, I am never, ever again sitting in last chair. Two years later, I'm trying out for the high school band at Elkhart Central. I'm now a freshman. There's two bands. Uh, you, you try out and that determines what band you're going to be in. Freshmen never make the top band. But Mr. Niffle said to me, I believe you can do it. I believe you can sit in that top band. You can be in the symphonic band. I know that you can if you will apply yourself, if you'll go for it, if you'll try it. I believe you can make it. And sure enough, because he kept wearing me down. He kept telling me, you can do this. I I know you can do this. Listen to me. I've been a band director for a gazillion years. Listen, I've helped students, uh, uh, countless students. I know, I see it in you. You have the ability. You can do it. Uh, Tryouts came. And sure enough, of all the baritones throughout the two bands, I scored third highest. And for for the rest of my high school career, I would never sit lower than first chair on my primary instrument. Now, I don't say that to brag today. This isn't about, ooh, look at me. I mean, I came to a point in my life where God says, I want you to lay that all down. I want you to walk away from that. That's not what we're doing, Earl. That's getting in the way of, of what I've called you to do. So I've laid that all down. I don't, you never asked me to play baritone. Um, my point, though, is that words have a power to set a course. It was ultimately Mr. Nipfel that caused me to excel in music. Not because he played the instrument for me, 
but he continued to express that he believed in me. He he encouraged me to keep going even when I wanted to give up. He pushed me to apply myself when all I wanted to do was play Atari and not practice my instrument. Words have the power to set a course, to give us hope, to keep us moving. They not only do they have the power to set a course, but they have a power to destroy. I mean, James is pretty clear about that. He talks about forest fires. What's more destructive than that? Ask the people in California, they'll tell you not much. Words have the power to destroy. This past Monday, a, a friend asked if, if we could meet. He was really excited about something that happened over the weekend, and he wanted to talk to me about it. And, uh, and, and um, well, most, don't, most people don't fully understand about pastors that Mondays can be kind of rough for us. Um, it's like sometimes we get hung over from Sunday and our Sunday hijacks our Monday. And this Monday, I had, I had a horrible case of the Mondays. It doesn't happen often, but from time to time it does. And when it does, it's, it's pretty brutal. But when my friend said, hey, let's meet, I, I want to share this exciting stuff with you. Truth be told, I was like, I don't want to hear your exciting stuff. But he was my friend. I loved him. And I felt like this was the least I could do. So I said, sure, let's meet Monday night. So, so we did. We met Monday night and he came in raring to go, man. He was, he was amped, ready to tell me about these exciting things. And, and, uh, and, and he was talking and, and I'm sitting there with, you know, my Monday still being hijacked by my Sunday. And, and, uh, and, and finally he was done and he said the four words that if I had to guess, he wouldn't say again, sadly. He said, what do you think? Oh, and I wish he wouldn't have said it too. Because I knew what I, was, I was at a crossroads there. I could, I could either continue to allow my Monday to be hijacked by this hangover, this, ah, maybe that's not a good word, this, uh, the Mondays, or I could be excited for him. And I chose wrong. And it went from bad to worse. And we spent the next, I don't know, half hour back and forth, like you could, you could feel the temperature in the room rising and it wasn't excitement. I mean, two guys just getting increasingly angry with each other. And at one point he said something that, that triggered something in my mind and, I, and, I, and I, that inner narrative said to me, way to go, Earl. You've destroyed a friendship because a half glass isn't good enough for you. Words have the power to destroy, and, and not, just, not just friendships. I read this article on, on a newyorkpost.com. Let me read it to you real quick, or parts of it. A 30-year-old nurse of mom, excuse me, a 30-year-old nurse and mom of two killed herself after being bullied by her colleagues in an inquest into the death determined this week. Rian Collins hanged herself in her home in March. Her fiance, David Reed, found her lifeless body when he came to her home. Five months later, investigators determined that Collins' decision to end her life stemmed from troubles with her colleagues who made her life very difficult, according to the report. She was having issues at work, investigating Officer Sergeant Nia Lambley said, according to the report. She was being sworn at and bullied. 
Her death has made headlines across the globe as people mourn the loss of a woman whose Facebook page shows posts of a happy, vibrant woman celebrating her children's accomplishment and playing with them on school breaks. But unfortunately, words have the power to destroy not just friendships, but on the other end of the spectrum, our words have the power to destroy lives. The tongue, the mouth, our words have the power to destroy, and they also have the power to corrupt. They have the power to corrupt. Notice what James says in verse 6. I think we're going to put it on the screen. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. I want you in your text to circle that word, corrupts. It corrupts the whole body. This verse is a, is a bleak caution. It's, uh, gee, James, thanks for the upper. Um, there's a severe caution. The tongue has the power to harm your relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, it can set a course for someone, Yes, it can destroy, but even worse, it can harm your relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, you've got that word corrupted, corrupt circled. Now flip back to James 1.27. James 1.27 reads, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being, what's the word you have there? Well, it's on the screen, is polluted by the world. Different words in the English, in the Greek, the same word. James is drawing a connection here and reminding us that our relationship with God, that, that the relationship that God wants with his children is a relationship that, where our deeds prove our creeds, where our actions demonstrate what we say we believe, where we make a difference in the life of others because we have a God who makes a difference in the life of others. And... A relationship, a relationship where we live a holy life that pleases him, where we're different from those around us, from those who don't know him, where, where our lifestyle, and in, in James 3, our words are different than theirs. He wants us to be different from the world. And when we don't, it impacts our relationship with him. When we sound like everyone else around us, we harm our relationship with Jesus. I don't even remember who it was this week, but I was in a conversation with somebody and we were talking about bartering or making deals or something like that. And this person, again, if it was you, maybe you remember, I don't remember who it was, but I do remember this. They said to me, I've never been good at Jewing people out of their money. And I was like, to myself, I'm like, time out. Did you just use a racial slur? Referring to the people of God, the Jews? I don't, I don't think Jesus, the Jew, would be very pleased with that. Friends, we can't use racial slurs. It doesn't matter if we grew up with it, if our mom and dad talked like that, and that's just the way it was when we were a kid. Everyone said it. We don't get a pass on that. Every nation, tribe, tongue, skin color, ethnicity has been created in the image of God. Every person, no matter how different they are from us, speak a different language, come from a different place, have a different skin color, different height, whatever. Every person bears God's image and deserves our respect. We cannot talk like those around us and use racial slurs. 
or racial emblems. Argue with me all you want about the historicity of it, but get the Confederate flag off your vehicle. Quit wearing it on your shirts. We can argue about the history all you want, but there is no doubt what it represents to people who have a different skin color than us. We are the people of God. We cannot do that. People deserve respect. They've been made in God's image. I mean, your neighbors, your neighbors may enjoy barbecuing others with the the most recent gossip, but you're a follower of Christ. You can't do that. Whoever's being barbecued with the gossip, they deserve enough respect and integrity from you to find out the truth about what's being said. You owe it to Jesus Christ to find out the truth about what's being said about someone else and then to not repeat it, but to help be a solution. You know, your Facebook feed may be riddled with how horrible a politician is or how evil the opposing party is, but you're a follower of Christ. You may live in this country, but you are not a citizen of this kingdom. You cannot be posting on Facebook constant political garbage that's argumentative and demeaning. The mouth, even if it comes through the fingers on a keyboard, has the power to corrupt, to harm our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it's easy to talk about how a ministry at church falls short. But when was the last time that you went out of your way to thank the leader of that ministry for all that they sacrifice? Most of our ministries here are lay-led. The people who give week in and week out work full-time jobs, many of them. And then they put in another part-time job here doing what they felt the Lord and the church leaders asked them to do. When was the last time you went up and said, thank you for giving your best to God and to our church? I appreciate it. You know, when, when valuable critique comes on the heels of a lack of affirmation, the only thing it does is wounds and causes hurt. We cannot be like that. We are the people of God. Our words have the power to corrupt And then James moves on to one last thing he wants to drive home with us. And, and in, in the last few verses, verses 9 through 12 of this passage, they, they seem to be about the hypocrisy of people who, on the one hand, praise and worship God, and on the other hand, like, use their mouth for cursing and to, 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 to belittle others. It reminds me of a scene from a recent superhero movie. Maybe you've seen this one. Uh, these, these superheroes, the Avengers, are, are in a battle. Opening scene of the movie, they're, they're fighting some baddies. And at one point, Iron Man uh, lets, a, lets a profane word slip. And, and, and all, the, all the superheroes are connected through some kind of communication system. And so uh, when he lets his profanity slip, Captain America says, Language! And uh, it's kind of a funny moment, and it becomes a running joke through the rest of the movie. Everybody giving Cap a hard time because he called Iron Man on his poor use of words. But close to the end of the movie, uh, Captain America, in a, in a moment of relief, drops a cuss word. And Nick Fury says, ooh, you kiss your mama with that mouth? 
And it's kind of this humorous thing where, where, where we get it and it maybe seems to illustrate James. What's the deal with people using their mouths to do both good and harm? And, and that bothers James, no doubt. But there's a greater concern that James expresses here. Let's read it, verse 11. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring, my brothers and sisters? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now get this, we know this. James is not talking about the improbability of fresh water coming from a place known for its mineral deposits. He's not talking about how unrealistic it is to expect, you know, uh, uh, grapes to come from a fig tree. He's telling us that the fruit always grows from the root. Jesus says it like this. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Or perhaps on a day when Jesus had a bad case of the Mondays, he was more direct. He said, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You see, James is reminding us that my tongue removes the mystery about what's happening in my heart. Words expose penetration. The way we talk makes it clear how deeply the gospel of Jesus Christ has penetrated into our hearts and our minds and our lives. You see, the gospel teaches us that we are by nature enemies of God. We're born rebels with our fist in the face of God. But the gospel says that Jesus want, that God wanted so bad uh, for us to be his people and for him to be our God that, that he took on flesh and he lived among us. He lived a faultless life. And at the end of that life, he was falsely or wrongly accused as a criminal, as a sinner. And although he wasn't guilty of it and didn't deserve it, he accepted that punishment. And God was pleased with his sacrifice. And so he allowed the punishment that was wrongfully put on Jesus to be the substitution for the punishment that you and I deserve for the wrong that we actually do. And the gospel tells us that that can be true for anyone. Paul says in, in the, the book of Romans that, that uh, if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead, we can be saved. We become children of God. This is what the gospel teaches. Now, the hard part of that equation, if you will, the hardest part isn't believing that Jesus rose from the dead, although that's pretty difficult because, quite frankly, we've never seen it. But the hard part of following Christ is confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is the hard part of the gospel. That we have to live with Jesus in control of our lives. It's not enough to invite Jesus to come in and, and be resident in our heart. We have to make him president. He's not satisfied with residing. He must preside. The gospel says that Christ Jesus has to be Lord of our life. And the problem with our words isn't that not, it's not just that they don't glorify God, although so many of our words don't. So many of my words, but the problems with my words is 
that they expose that the gospel hasn't fully taken root in my heart yet. I have not really made Jesus the Lord of my life. When I use my words to control a person or to control a situation, I'm demonstrating that I don't trust that Jesus is sovereign and that he can take care of the matters or the issues that I'm trying to deal with through my words. When my, when my mouth utters lies, I'm, I'm demonstrating that the God of truth in whom there is no falsehood is not really the God who controls my life. When all of my words talk about how the, the glass is half empty, I testify my doubt that God can bring about something good out of this situation. That's my end of the spectrum. Some of you are on the other end of the spectrum and nothing is ever bad. Everything's always great and the glass is always overflowing. Those words also demonstrate that you don't believe the gospel because the gospel says we have to acknowledge that there's a problem before there can be healing. Everything's not always all right. When my friend asks me if I think they were wrong and because I want to be their friend and I want them to think well of me when I beat around the bush or when I don't tell the whole truth, I demonstrate that I don't trust the Holy Spirit's power to convince that person of what's happening. I I demonstrate that I think my judgment is better. So many of the sins of the tongue come from a misplaced identity. We've forgotten who we are or we don't really believe that we're children of God, that Jesus is our Lord. We want people to think well of us. We want them to fawn over us. We want to be seen as the best, the most successful, the, the most persuasive, the, the lovingest, the kindest, the fill in the blank. And we forget that ultimately it's God who judges us, not others. And so we use our words to, uh, to put other people down or to, to make ourselves look better so that people will think better of us. We forget that we're saved by Jesus. And we try to use our words to save ourselves, Our biggest problem isn't the words we say. Our biggest problem is that the gospel hasn't taken full root in our hearts. Our words just become a barometer of how deeply the gospel has penetrated our heart. So what do we do with that? Four real quick things. First of all, know that the mouth will change when the heart changes. Know that the mouth will change when the heart changes. Our words come from the mouth. The fruit comes from the root. The mouth is connected to the heart, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. So if we want to change the words, we got to change the heart. That doesn't mean that we stop disciplining our tongue. That doesn't mean that we stop teaching our children and grandchildren how to, you know, how to speak respectfully and kindly. And that doesn't mean we stop washing our mouths out with soap, but don't tell them I said it. But understand that the battle isn't as much with the mouth as it is with the heart. So when you hear your children or grandchildren say things they really oughtn't say, or when you hear yourself say something you really shouldn't have said, don't just correct, examine. Don't just correct, examine. Do what my friend and I did on Monday night as we began to realize this wasn't working. Somewhere here we got off cue. By the way, our friendship isn't destroyed. We were able to apologize to each other because we stopped and we said, why? What happened here? Why, why Why are we both, me more than him, why are we both being a bonehead and using our our words in a way that doesn't glorify God. Ask the question, why? Ask, instead of just saying to your son, don't talk like that, 
Say, why do you think your teacher is a cotton-headed ninny muggins? Ask him why. Ask your friend why she felt the need to tell the whole group that there's a problem when clearly there isn't. And then why she felt compelled to put herself in the middle of it as a solution when clearly there's no problem to solve. Ask the question, why? Ask the Holy Spirit to examine you and tell you why you said that thing. Confess your sin. Confess your sin. Don't fall into the trap of thinking it's a white lie or it's just a little oopsie or, oh, another bad day. I can't believe I said that. Understand that the, the, the way we talk, if it doesn't glorify God, is a sin. Don't just confess to God, though. Confess to others. I'm sorry that I said that and I was disrespectful. I have a whole lot more respect for you than those words conveyed, and I am truly sorry. I realized yesterday after we were done speaking that my little attempt at a joke may have actually hurt you. And I'm sorry, I didn't want to hurt you. Will you forgive me? Man, I was a total jerk last night. I can't believe I said those things. They were wrong. Will you please forgive me? Confess your sin. And then finally, repent. Take steps to change your talk. It's true. We, the, we started out the, the application by saying the mouth will change when the heart changes. That's absolutely true. But scripture makes it clear time and time again, we have a responsibility to work out our salvation. That means we have a responsibility to clean up what we can. And for, and, and for a lot of us, that's going to mean our tongue. We have, to, we have to take steps to talk differently. We can't just sit back and say, well, when God's ready, I'll just quit talking that way. No, God says you get to work cleaning up your mouth and then the rest of it is I'll be working in you so that you want to talk in a way that brings me glory and so that you have the words to say that are edifying. Repent, start now cleaning up your, your, your tongue. Do whatever it takes, have a swear jar at home. Uh, um, carry a little thing of hand sanitizer and wash your mouth out. I don't know, do what you want. Snap a rubber band on your wrist. There's all kinds of tactics you can use, but start now making a difference. I know we've got a little long on this, I'm sorry. The temptation is to just pray and be done. I told you that this week the Holy Spirit whispered to me so many times, Earl, why did you say that? Or why did you not say that? Or why did you say that like that? And so many times throughout the week, I've had to stop and I've had to confess, I'm sorry, Father, that was wrong. I've had to text people and say, I was a real jerk last night, please forgive me. I've had to make phone calls and say, I'm sorry. I had to have difficult lunches where I sat with people and said, I've wounded you and I'm sorry. I think today we need to kneel together before God. Uh, maybe only I do, but I do. I need to kneel before God and confess that my mouth is corrupted, 
So that's how we're going to close today. No song, no music. I'm going to come kneel at the altar here. Uh, we're just going to start with a time of silence. No talking, just listening. If you want to come join me at the altar, you can do that. During that time of silence, just make your way. And I'm going to close in prayer and we'll bless each other and we'll leave. But let's not do it before we've confessed to God where we've fallen short and asked for his spirit's power to move forward. I'm going to ask if you'd bow your head and close your eyes. We'll have a few moments of silence and then I'll pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Father, I confess to you that my words bring more pain than harm. More times than I want them to, they separate me further from you than drawing me closer to you. They put distance between you and others rather than, uh, than helping others to draw near to you. Father, I confess that and I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your indwelling spirit to continue to search me and try me, to continue to help me to speak life, to use words that honor you. Father, I ask that your, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the good news of your forgiveness and, and your sovereignty and your lordship, that it would continue to penetrate my heart and my life. Father, I ask that the words that I speak, that the meditations of my heart, that the, the running narrative in my mind, that it would be pleasing in your sight. My God, my Redeemer. We thank you for your spirit who speaks truth even when it hurts, who wields a scalpel not to harm, but to bring healing and wholeness. And we ask, Father, make us whole for your glory. Amen and amen. Can we please stand and bless one another? May your words bring life. May the gospel fully penetrate your heart and your life. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. You are loved. Go with God's grace.